Hello everyone. Before we start today's podcast, some exciting news for you. You can experience the Inside Politics podcast live in Dublin on May 16th when Hugh Linehan, Jennifer Bray and I will be joined by Cliff Young of Ipsos, one of America's top pollsters, to talk about the US election, our own local and European elections and much more. It's a breakfast event kicking off at 8am in Trinity College. If you'd like to attend, you can get tickets at irishtimes.com forward slash events. That's irishtimes.com forward slash events. I hope we see lots of you there. It's Friday, January the 26th, and you're very welcome to the Inside Politics podcast wrap of the week from the Irish Times. I'm Hugh Linehan. Jack Horgan Jones and Pat Leahy from the politics team are here. Uh, hello to you both. Hi, Hugh. Ave, Hugh. Later on, we're going to be looking, among other things, at the latest ructions in RTE. We may touch on the US elections if we have time. And we will, as usual, be selecting our favourite articles of the week from irishtimes.com. But we're recording this just as a decision has come in from the uh, ICJ in The Hague in relation to the case brought by South Africa against Israel over alleged genocide uh, during its attacks on Gaza over the last three months. Um, it's, I suppose it's a win for South Africa in that um, the ICJ has accepted that it has jurisdiction in the case. Prima facie jurisdiction is what it says. So from what I understand, the case will continue. And we did want to discuss Gaza, but through an Irish lens, Pat, because it really has, you know, taken up a lot of airspace in 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 Irish politics over the over the last few weeks, it's. I mean, I, that might sound as if I'm I'm surprised by that. Obviously, a lot of people in the country are very concerned by what's going on there, but it's very near the top of the agenda. Yeah, Hugh, and they. I mean, I'm literally just watching it here on the uh, on the laptop as we speak, and the judgment is coming through as we are recording. So I, I guess we'll have probably more details uh, as we as we go along, but. Um, in a way, it is surprising that this particular foreign policy issue has taken up so much time and energy uh, in Irish politics in the last couple of months, because that rarely happens uh, in 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 Irish politics. Foreign policy issues and international events tend to be kind of boxed off, and they don't tend to get huge dull time. They tend not really to be political dividing lines uh, in, in, uh, in this country. But this one has turned into that. It has gained an awful lot of, it, it has been an awful lot of dull airtime has been this week as well. devoted to it. This week and, and, uh, and every week. And there is a political dividing line, I think, between the government, which is striking to... To my mind, and I think by European standards, quite a hard line on Israel, quite a pro-Palestinian line, but not by any means pro-Palestinian enough for the uh, for the the opposition, uh, which inter alia this week was demanding that the government uh, join or support the South African case before the ICJ, and I think the. Judgment that is coming through to us, as I say, as we uh, record here, is likely to increase that pressure on the government. What do you think is driving it as such an... I mean, I know it's an event in other countries as well, and I might, might mention that a little bit further, but what do you think it's driving it so strongly in Ireland, Jack? Well, I mean, as we've discussed in this podcast before, uh, the kind of natural disposition of the Irish electorate is probably more pro-Palestinian than it is anything else. Um, 
there's a history, I think, of being interested in this out of all kind of overseas conflicts. Uh, there's a whole bunch of other reasons you could probably argue that, you know, Irish peacekeepers being active in that part of the world plays into it as well. But I suppose the, the important part is that there is just a, a greater degree of saliency um, uh, for that conflict within Irish politics. And it is just a amazingly, uh, terribly brutal conflict at the moment, you know. Um, so you take those two factors and... and take a step back from that and you know obviously with those two things being true it's going to be a thing in Irish politics I mean from from the government's perspective and from the opposition's perspective the fact that it's become such a tenacious uh, factor in day-to-day political life here presents a particular problem for the coalition and a particular opportunity I think for for the opposition so as Pat said Ireland is uh, is something of an outlier in Europe uh, with how strongly supportive of the Palestinian position it is. Um, but when it is at home, it I think Michal Martin in particular, and we saw a lot of this in the Dáil during the week, is defending Ireland's stance, which is kind of, you know, gradual and incremental when it comes to getting involved in the South African case. And he's relying on a lot of kind of processology, you know, explaining the different kind of legal technicalities of why we are or aren't taking a position, um, which may well be correct. But when the opposition is just levelling the charge of foot dragging or almost indifference to the human cost of the war in Gaza, I think that that's a much more, there's much more cut through with that. And I think that the opposition, in particular, I think the Social Democrats have done quite well in this. They've they've recognised that there's a constituency for the, the, the argument that the government has not been active enough on this. And that constituency probably spreads out beyond uh, people who are, you know, interested in the day-to-day kind of politics of of the state. And, um, the you know, anecdote is the opposite of data, but certainly from my own kind of social circle and my own kind of social media circle and stuff like that, I have noticed... Metropolitan, bohemian. <laughs> Small. <laughs> Trustafarian. <laughs> Go on. Um, I've noticed that, like, people who aren't political, who, like, wouldn't read the kind of home news pages of the Irish Times, are sharing an awful lot of stuff on Gaza. And they're sharing an awful lot of stuff criticising the government and criticising the Taoiseach and the Tanishta and basically saying, get up off your arse and do more on this. This is one of the defining issues of our time. The, the scale of human loss here is incomprehensible and you have to do everything that you can to stop it. And they also are sharing, particularly, I've noticed, Social Democrat stuff and Holly Cairns in, in leaders' questions and stuff like that. So I think that they've they've correctly identified that, you know, this is a, a good vehicle, which isn't necessary to say that they're, you know, acting entirely cynically. I'm sure they think it's the right thing to do as well. No. It can be both at the same time. It, it, it can be both at the same time, ideally. and that is the nature of politics. So I think that that's that's one of the issues that is playing out at the moment, and that's why I think it's it's particularly sticky in Irish politics. We, right we, now. Should, we, we should say that it's never ideal in a podcast when breaking news is breaking as you're recording the podcast, and by the time our listeners hear this, they'll probably have a fuller picture of the full judgment. But it does look as if um, the court has has at least to some degree, and I quote, found it plausible that at least some of the provisional measures which were requested to protect Palestinians. Um, should be uh, should be implemented. So we'll have to see what that means over the next while. It strikes me listening to Jack there, Pat, that the kind of demographic he's talking about, which is really, I suppose, the Social Democrats' 
target demographic, isn't it? Is educated people, committed to social justice, maybe quite active on social media. Whether they're Trustafarian, they're probably metropolitan, <laughs> more metropolitan than rural. This is just becoming ragging on my social circle. This entire well, podcast. you know, we, we know where you live. Um, <laughs> Listeners can paint a picture for themselves, I think, <laughs> the information we've given them. Yeah, absolutely. You know, a craft beer bar is never far away. Um, <laughs> and expensive, so, co- so without, expensive coffee. Without stereotyping. Third wave coffee. Without yeah. stereotyping yeah. even more, that there is a sort of a demographic and it has been remarked on about the Social Democrats before uh, of people, some people who were um, brought into politics from uh, the referendums over marriage equality uh, and abortion, younger, perhaps not party political in the more old-fashioned sense of the word, but committed to certain ideas of, of, of social justice and human rights. Labour voters, in short. But people who used to be Labour voters. Yeah, indeed, yeah, exactly. But, yeah. but maybe broke with Labour over its, its period in government... 2011 to uh, to 2016, and um, yeah, look, I, I, I think there's something in that, but. You know, let's not get carried away. What are the Social Democrats in the uh, around in the polls? You know, somewhere between you know three, four, five, six, tops top six percent. I think they top six percent earlier on in the year, but that fell away uh, again. So now you can always make the argument, which drives everybody in the Social Democrats nuts. Of course, that if you you know added their support to Labour support, you had a smart strategy, and you managed to pull in some of the other left leaning independence uh, around the country, then you have a political force that is significantly more potent and certainly has the prospect of being more influential in government making. So that's, I suppose, it's slightly, yeah, but slightly the, 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 the counter-argument to that would be that the Social Democrats have a very particular brand and this is what we're seeing in this instance and diluting it with a bit of, you know, old Labour people still in their view tarnished by their uh, by their experience in government and, uh, and a few other independents uh, would, would would dilute that brand. The brand is young, the brand is yeah, social but, justice. But, 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 but this is my point, let's not get carried away yeah. at the success of the brand, you know. Sure. I mean, they're roughly equivalent with Labour in, in, in the polls. Yeah, like, absolutely. We should we should put a check in here. You know, we're not we're not saying that, you know, this is the a wave building towards the Social Democrats that's going to lead to kind of Gilmore Fertitia, Cairns Fertitia kind of things in the in the run into the next election. But I think where where it is actually more interesting is the kind of the dynamics that exist between opposition parties and how they situate themselves on yes. on high profile so, issues yeah, so and, this, and how they're how they're situating and, themselves vis a vis Sinn Fein and who's winning that kind of and space. And this is very interesting, battle. isn't it? Because apart from and we we framed it so far as the opposition versus the government, but there is a there is a kind of competition going on among the various parties of the left on the, in the opposition benches on this as to I, who's, I mean, of, of, of course who's there best is. on the issue. Of, of course there is and it extends beyond this issue. We've talked about it here before I think I've certainly written about it how you know the political targets when you know and we're heading into an election year the political targets for many of the parties opposition uh, of the opposition particularly for the Social Democrats shouldn't really be the government parties. They should be the other opposition parties because that's where their fight is going to be for uh, for votes. And if I'm, uh, you know, in the Social Democrats, I suspect I am looking at Sinn Féin as my greatest threat to, uh, to my seat. And that extends right up as far as the leader in Cork Southwest. You know, uh, uh, the threat to her seat probably comes from Sinn Féin and their threat to a lot of social democrats comes from Sinn Féin, run expansionist Sinn Féin rather than uh, from uh, from Fianna Fáil and Fine Gael candidates and if you accept 
that, then the corollary of that is that their political target, at least to an extent, should be Sinn Féin rather than... And, uh, and rather maybe that's the and case because there has happening. been some criticism, probably more from the people before Profit Socialist Party and of the of the left spectrum of Sinn Féin this week because, you know, St. Patrick's Day is not that far away. Uh, the government will arrive en masse for its whiteout breakfast. But of course, Sinn Féin, as usual, will be there. And Sinn Féin has been subject to some some attacks this week over the fact that it, it is still going. Yeah, I, it started it started last week, actually, with um, the, a plinth with people for profit who are very canny at identifying these kind of issues where they can force Sinn Féin in particular, but other parties of the left kind of closer to their position or just make them uncomfortable. Uh, they did it with, for example, the, the calls to expel the Israeli ambassador last mm-hmm. year. That was something that they let out on and Sinn Féin ultimately just had to kind of go down with it. And... Um, they're doing it to an extent on this where they're in the first instance saying the government shouldn't go uh, and you know meet with uh, what they've termed genocide Joe um, and given the the support for the US uh, for Israel in the US um, but obviously because Sinn Féin is kind of part of that broad that broader junket that the political system goes on that this becomes a question for them as well and they're saying that you know Sinn Féin shouldn't meet with any members of the US administration um, and I think that this will be a thing for you know the early part of March the extent to which like obviously they're going to go both the Sinn Féin will go and, and obviously the Taoiseach will go and meet the president and that's not going to get called off but you know will they raise uh, the Gaza issue and if not why not and there's a very uh, there's a very recent kind of precedent for this when uh, the the Chinese uh, premier visited and the main thread beforehand was are you going to raise human rights issues and they did and the president did as well so I think the question will be well look if you're going to raise human rights issues with China, why aren't you going to use your chance with the US administration to raise human rights issues in Gaza, where you've been very vociferous about human rights issues? In fact, way, way beyond that, you've said, you know, there's more likely war crimes underway, whatever about the genocide question. So PBP um, I, quite correctly have identified a weakness, I, 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 in, which, which is longstanding in Sinn Féin's political position, isn't it? That is, has faced both ways, you could argue, for decades on global politics when, uh, you know, allying itself with the mm-hmm. ANC and the PLO and various other anti-imperialist liberation movements around the world one hand but then you know with putting out fist, the collection box surely. on the on the bar in 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 Boston um with a very very different kind of political p- uh, presentation there and this is a kind of a yeah, more sophisticated becoming, version of the same it's thing it's becoming more acute for them now as the prospect of power hoves into view for Sinn Féin I, I mean I'd say one thing as an aside I think people before profit identified this you know a good while ago um I remember talking to one of their TDs I, as far back as 12, 18 months ago and he was saying, you know, you can expect us to be much more critical of, uh, of Sinn Féin over, over the coming period. I think we will see more of that now. But in a way, the question for Sinn Féin to return to them is a sort of a, look, it's, 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 a, it's a more obvious tightrope, isn't it? That the party is currently learning that it has to walk on you know, balancing between, on the one side, its its commitment to be the party of change and on the other side to reassure it many of its new, you know, traditionally middle ground voters that the change isn't going to be upsetting to them, that it will change the things that they, you know, that they don't like, but it won't change the things such as 
Ireland's economic model that they uh, that they do like. And uh, I think, you know, in in some ways, this is a consequence of the political success of Sinn Féin, but it doesn't make it any the less different, uh, any the less difficult, rather, for them to, to, to strike that balance. And I think it will require some political skill from them as we uh, approach the next election. And speaking of political skill, I mean, you've been thinking a bit about Sinn Féin as well. It's interesting, we haven't talked very much about Sinn Féin uh, in this podcast over the last few weeks, and that's because the news agenda has probably been a bit away from its preferred news agenda, Mm. Jack, in that it it has been, I think, uncomfortable and less than sure-footed around some of these debates about uh, asylum seekers and refugees over the last while. There's been less talk um, immediately about, you know, the, the areas it's most comfortable uh, about housing, most of all. So it kind of needs to, as we enter, as we get properly into this year, which is going to be essentially one long election campaign, mm. as far as I can see, that it gets back on the agenda that it wants. Yeah, and I think you saw some of that this week uh, at leaders' questions. They raised uh, health and uh, overcrowding in the hospitals, Limerick in particular, uh, and they had a, a motion down on ho- housing uh, on, I can't remember whether it was Tuesday, I think it might have been Tuesday. Um, and there's an element here of, of going back to your kind of the, the, the twin pillars of, you know, your entire political critique of the government. And, you know, there's nothing necessarily wrong with that. They've built a very successful period in opposition from the point of view of polling anyway out of those twin critiques. Um, and it reminds me of that, that old adage, you know, nobody ever got fired for buying IBM. Um, it's, it's, it's good politics and it will probably help them kind of sustain the, uh, the, 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 po- the polling where they're at, even though they may be at a bit of a, a ceiling there. But I think that it, it lacks maybe something of the kind of the vim and vigor of the kind of the identifying the issue of the day and then owning the media cycles thereafter, you know. Um, to, what is the issue of the day? I mean, there have been attempts to fix on certain things, you know, the, the buying up of certain housing estates by yeah. by private landlords, including a, an airline. Yeah, yeah, and that, and that, and that lends a certain frisson to the to the to the um, to the housing issue this week. There's a, there's a broader dynamic there, isn't there? And that is that preparation for government, yeah. which is what the type of opposition that Sinn Féin is at at the moment is just by its nature less shouty than you don't know. T- get don't yourself, tell Pierre get yourself pretty noticed. Shouty this week. Get yeah. yourself noticed. Opposition yeah. are are you know dig into to those those sort of issues because you know in in twelve months time perhaps Sinn Féin could be in government at which point all the things that it has said it would do and mm. promised to do in opposition will be held up to it. Moving to an incredibly different subject. Toy Story the musical. Did you get to it yourself, Pat? I did not. Uh, Neither did anyone else. That's the problem. I'm an enormous fan of musical theatre, I have to say. Um, well, really? God, I'm very disappointed in you. I do like a bit of... Uh, I, I do like a you bit haven't of... Been to Hamilton? Hamilton. You haven't been to Hamilton? I have been to Hamilton. There you I'm go. going to Hamilton in September. There you go. Yeah. There you go. I've, I've been to Hamilton as well. I, I should it. point out that I was a fan of Alexander Hamilton long before the musical was ever thought of. Yeah. Anyway... Um, uh, but we digress. <laughs> Toy Story the musical is is was no Hamilton. I think I think I think it's safe to say. And the the aftermath of the flop of all flops, which which it was, uh, reverberated down this week. I was listening, Jack, to the uh, to the minister Catherine Martin faltering her way through an interview. I'd say uh, on on Morning Ireland and RTE um, this morning in relation to the position of the board of RTE. That report uh, is pretty damning. Yeah. Uh, and I would have thought it showed that the people who were in situ at the time, a number of whom still remain on the current board, failed in 
their duty, uh, the duty for which they had been appointed to the board in the first place, which in the old formulation would mean they should be considering their position. Yeah, but they're not, and neither is the government. Um, I mean, you could extend the criticism beyond the board and to the minister, and this was put to her this morning. You know, this is no longer an isolated thing. This is no longer, you know, when did you hear about Ryan Tuberty's uh, payments and how did you handle it thereafter? It's Ryan Tuberty, it's the, it's the uh, I want to say slush fund, but um, it's not a slush fund, of course. It is the, the barter account. The barter account. It's the barter account. It's the toy show, the musical. It's everything. So, like, you have this kind of sense of an organisation that from a governance and culture point of view uh, is, you know, not at the races would be understating it uh, severely and that should become a political problem for her but it hasn't um, Why not? Well sorry it hasn't become like a kind of resignation level political problem for her although there are deep frustrations amongst her cabinet colleagues on, on how she's handled it but what, what, um, what do they think she has done wrong? Just failed to put a stamp on it to be frank failed to take ownership of it um, there was a period during the summer where she, she wasn't available uh, she had recently suffered a bereavement it must be said but certainly before that became clear, there was frustration in real time because there was a lot of stuff coming out about RTE and uh, there is a an onus on the minister in charge of the relevant sector during a crisis to grab it by the scruff of the neck and give it political oh, ownership also, and direction. But also in a, a political controversy like this in which the government are largely, I would say, blameless, but are not the ones in the firing line. Yeah, so like a, a good example, do you remember um, the horsemeat scandal? And that was kind of the, the, making, the, the making of of, um, of Simon Coveney in some ways because he was seen to kind of step up and put a stamp on it and perform really well. Now, it, it wasn't quite as long running as, uh, as as the RTE one. I'm not probably not quite as complex, but like it just goes to show that like, you know, when something like this comes along, it can kind of be the making or breaking of you. Because, because she, I mean, she can be criticised and she was asked about this uh, about this, this morning and previously, you know, what responsibility she bears for the kinds of activities that we've seen, you know, pretty dodgy accounting practices, for example. Yeah, in, yeah. In, 75 in grand's just being shuttled around. What is it about 75 grand? Yeah. Actually, like it just seems to be the magic number. Well, I mean, <laughs> one would guess that if, if they found if they found two of these, that there's probably a few more of them in there if they if they if they did a full if they did a full search but yeah. really there is an arm's length relationship between uh, RTE for good reason between yeah. between the government and RTE and so she's she's not really technically responsible for that but she does have does have some responsibility for the composition of the board yeah yeah for sure I mean I don't know the exact nature of the formal powers but I mean if the displeasure of the minister of the government was communicated to the board they would they'd, they'd have to go right I mean I thought it was an extraordinary performance in some respects by her this morning very halting very unsure yeah. kind of just de- demonstrating a lack of grip mm. and and I think that's been the characteristic of her handling since uh, since the word go I mean her argument this morning seemed to be well you couldn't you couldn't fire the board because you wouldn't have a because we're then not, we're not talking the, about firing the full board either we're, no no, we're no, no. Talking said, about you that, couldn't you know, fire people, people on the board involved. because then you know because they needed to be in place for, for the purposes of accountability mm. which seems to me like you know a the, the implicit suggestion was, you know, well, we can't fire them now because, you know, there may be worse stuff coming down the road and we'd have to fire them then, you know. <laughs> and if we fire them now, who would we fire then, you yeah. know? Yeah, well, that is, that is the Taoiseach's view as well, in, in fairness. So it's not confined to, to Catherine Martin. But um, like I think, I think so the government, the government means not being fired. The government kind of alloyed themselves uh, to to the board quite early in this. I, I get the sense that, you know, as the, as the scandal kind of broke, like, they decided to back the board and, you know, it would be more the executive that might take the fall and certainly the executive that was in place at the time has been decimated. Um, but will that will that kind of alliance be, be tested um, as more and more evidence kind of stacks up of, 
you know, yeah, they could say that they were presented with a fait accompli, but like you're on the board because you're supposed to be of, you know, sufficient ability and standing, you know, not just to be like, okay, grand, there's the fait accompli, I'll just, I'll sign off on that. So you're supposed to challenge and you're supposed to interrogate and that is the role of the board. There is the broader... So if you're seriously not doing yeah, that... Yeah, there is the broader political picture here in the background, which is the question of restructuring the way in which the the, the, the state funds RT. I know you've, you've, you've said in the past, Pat, and I agree with you, that the kind of the, the huge focus on, uh, on the, on the Tuberty scandal last summer had a kind of a flash in the pan quality to it and it didn't really have any great resonance beyond the fact that we got an awful lot of page views on irishtimes.com for, uh, for, for, for a couple of weeks off it. And sweet Aroctus, traffic. Aroctus Give me TV, that sweet traffic. Uh, experienced numbers it had never experienced before, but, but that the real political implications of it were not that big. The, the question of public service television and how it's funded is an important one. It's very close to very close to my heart. I'm not sure it's at the heart of political discourse, though, is it? No, no, it's it's not. And you're right. We've made this criticism before that, and I find you know the Tuberty stuff was entertaining, just like the toy show stuff is entertaining, just like no doubt the forthcoming report on previous. Uh, redundancy packages in RTE might be, you know, entertaining and are uh, outrageous. But the really important questions are about the future of RTE, how it is structured, uh, how it is funded and what it does. And we haven't had much discussion on that from government, but nor have we had a definition from RTE of what it should be doing in the future. What exactly public service broadcasting that everybody talks about? Well, there are pages of platitudes available, but they're really not very impressive and they don't really grip the, the core of the problem, in my view. You know, I would, yeah, I would agree with that. Yeah, and um, and 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 I think that in a situation where you know, RTE is in danger of a sort of a commercial death spiral, that that would be a pressing question to answer. But there doesn't seem to be much urgency, well, yeah, either yeah. from the broadcaster or from government. About and, it. and the dividing line within government on this is exchequer funding or some other mechanism. And there is, there is two clear camps on this. And one of the other interesting things about the Catherine Martin Morning Ireland interview on Friday morning, this morning, was she was making, I thought, you know, clearly trying to make a very strong case for exchequer funding. She was citing examples of where it worked mm-hmm. elsewhere and where you could put in safeguards against political interference Long-term and stuff like that. Like, I mean, it thing, around with you know, year, you know. The, 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 the proffered she, line publicly she, is she, she wants it to be on the table, but I think it's clear her preference is for that. At she this also stage. made a very good point, which is the majority of funding for public service media is already exchequer funding, actually. Yeah. If you add together TG Cahar, the support, the, the subsidy to pensioners and also additional money they're putting in. You yeah. know? So it's not something kind of yeah, extraordinary. They are, you know? They're already reliant. Yeah. On on direct funding from the government every budget but they have been to, for the last yeah, couple of months. Just to bring it back to the politics of this, like she is becoming more entrenched in her position, and the other camp are becoming more entrenched in their position, and she has vowed, in her words, to grasp this nettle of RTE funding. So there is a there is a big commitment to it. I just wonder. I just wonder. Are we? all of a sudden kind of heading towards maybe a bit of a fudge. I was minded of the comments both from the Tonister last weekend and from the Minister of Finance, Michael McGrath, about the licence fee. They both kind of said, well, yeah, you know, licence fee decision. It's, it's not but so the bad, licence fee, fee yeah. it's going to be around for the rest of this year anyway. Mm-hmm. And the Tonister yeah. said, it's going to be around a bit, something the yeah, next year as well. Possible, that doesn't sound very graspy, nettly, does it? Do you sense yeah. another commission in the, in the, in the, in the works? I'm just yet saying, yet like, I mean, given, 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 given I mean, the prospect of where we are in the electoral cycle, yeah, and the prospect exactly. of a split and a really big row over this if no one was willing to give like you know the, the 
obvious way out of that is you just fudge it's, it. Has somebody in the politics team at all thought of drawing up a list of thorny subjects which are unlikely to make it all the way to the to the digestive process well, of the government before the election? Yeah, yeah. Really? I was just going to put it on. I was just going to put it on Jack's list for next week. Well, I'm off next week. <laughs> Because it's like a holiday camp, right? <laughs> yeah, because, because it's kind of getting longer all the time, isn't it? Oh, yeah. Oh, I don't think they'll get to this. Oh, I don't think they'll get to that. You know? Yeah, you would say so. On an entirely unrelated subject, I've been asking the Department of Justice for two weeks. When's this hate speech, hate crime legislation coming? They seem strangely unable to tell me. It's a tricky one, you know? Mm-hmm. Like, why would you like, if you're going to grasp that nettle? Oh, yeah, yeah. yeah. Which, nettle, which nettles are going to be grasped and which ones are going to be away from I'll leave you two to think, I'll leave you two to think about that we're going to take a, a, a quick break if you're going to read that, that nettle being grasped by, by our politics team you'll need to be a subscriber to irishtimes.com just go to irishtimes.com slash subscribe and welcome back we're going to raise our head from the um, mucky fields of Irish politics in January Pat and look across the wide blue yonder to the Atlantic. Uh, we sent off our in, the golden waves. Our, our intrepid reporter Keith Duggan to, to the United States. I'm sure Keith had visions of himself like Hunter S. Thompson, fear and loathing on the campaign trail, going from sea to shining sea, up the, up the Rockies, down the Sierra Nevadas, yeah, particularly across to the Appalachians, uh, presumably not taking as many drugs as, as, as Hunter S. Thompson. Well, don't presume. But, no, I won't necessarily presume that. But, unfortunately, the whole thing seems to have come to a screeching halt because it's all over by the shouting, isn't it? Yeah, I don't, I don't think there's any doubt, Hugh, really, that Donald Trump's going to be the nominee. There probably was no, there's been no doubt about that for, uh, for months back. So how long does Nikki Haley stay in? Does she, you know, does she stay in after she gets tonked in South Carolina, her, uh, her home state? Uh, or does it matter if, if she does? We are on course for a, uh, a Biden-Trump round two, uh, assuming that neither is derailed by either legal or medical woes, and uh, that is really not uh, uh, really not a, a prospect to gladden the heart of uh, no, it's, of, it's, of it's, anyone. It's, it's, a, it's a contest which apparently seventy five percent of American voters uh, don't wish to happen. So you know, well, damn them, they're getting it whether they whether they're they want it or yeah. not. Yeah. Um, it also obviously causes deep worry and concern, to put it mildly, among many governments around the world and many people in the political establishment in the United States, the idea that Donald Trump might come back um, for, I think, unprecedented second term to, uh, you know, to be president, then lose and then to come back again. I'm not sure. Uh, testing our knowledge of US presidential if, history if there. If that has ever happened before, it will Pat, certainly be the, the first time in then. 60 <laughs> years. Or, I, I can't tell you it'll be the first time in more than 60 years that the same election has happened uh, um, four years later. I think Stevenson and Eisenhower happened in 52 and 56. But Donald Trump is a is a nose ahead in national polls, is he? But yes, um, there was an interesting piece in Politico during the week, um, the US version of Politico, the original Politico, of course, um, just kind of leaning on this idea that I think sometimes media elites like ourselves find quite comforting, but I think there is something to it as well, just that the kind of marmite nature of, of Donald Trump might actually weaken him in the general. Now, the, the, the national polling would suggest otherwise at the moment, but I think it is worth dwelling on. Uh, they were citing kind of various polls, including one in Iowa, um, which found that 43% of Nikki Haley supporters said they could never back uh, Trump over Biden. Or sorry, sorry, said they would buy, they would back Biden over Trump. So there's a, there's a cohort of Republican voters um, who are are kind of you know almost never Trumpers. Now whether that actually 
you know, manifest itself in the in the general election because these things often happen in primary seasons. People get really kind of embedded and we've seen it in the Democratic Party as well with um, Clinton and Obama and then with Bernie Sanders as well. And at the end of the day, I don't think it really it really did come to pass in, in the general elections in either event. But there is, you know, this, this factor with Donald Trump that he's not coming in as a first-time candidate and he is coming in even though he comes he comes with a huge amount of devotion from his base. He is coming in with baggage that on top of the kind of person that he already is, baggage associated with what he's done while in office and the risk that he faces now still that may may force that kind of cohort of otherwise Republican or Republican leaning voters away from him. And that, as we all know, is an incredibly important thing in uh, in US presidential politics where purple states basically hold the balance of power. Well, primary voters are obviously very misleading. They don't represent the, you know, the entire electorate. They tend to be more extreme yeah. to, to left or to right. The way you run in a primary is different from the way you run the general election. You appeal to the base in the primary and then you tack to the centre as, 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 hard as, as hard as you can in the general. And lis- so listening to all these vox pops in Iowa and New Hampshire was sort of illuminating but maybe a little bit misleading. But certainly what you could hear from those in some of Keith's reports and other ones I was listening to was a lot of people who feel America is going to hell in a handbasket, a really kind of almost apocalyptic kind of sense of the of the choices facing the country and, and the idea that only Donald Trump could could save them from that. So, you know, along with, to I think, a European year, a rather bizarre notion that, that Joe Biden is some sort of Marxist radical extremist, which... I really don't understand. A senile Marxist. Well, the senile, the senile yeah, thing no, is, yeah. is is obviously mm-hmm. important. I mean, it, it, I was listening to an optimistic democratic uh, strategist who had worked in the war room of Bill Clinton and had worked in the Obama campaigns as well. And he was very sanguine about all this, kind of in terms of what you're saying a little bit there, Jack. He was saying there is a, there is a strong anti-MAGA majority in the United States and that when people are re- reminded over the course of a campaign of what Donald Trump was and that, that that what he did, you know, that the best campaigning tool for Joe Biden is Donald Trump. Um, yep. And th- the best thing that could happen for Donald Trump would be if he disappeared for the yeah. next seven Well, months, as I said, it's, it's comforting to people who are that way inclined. I, I, well, it remains I, I to be seen whether it's... Yeah. That, that's always... I mean, if you look at what happened in the midterms, you can't discount... Also, the effect of the abortion issue yeah. as a motivating issue, particularly for women voters. And uh, yeah, I mean, that's in line with my expectations, you know. But let's not forget, it was pretty close last time, mm. you know. It was still a And campaigns yeah. are dynamic. They're unpredictable. What's the implication? Or what are the consequences? For instance, if Joe Biden trips going down on the, air, the, the, the airplane steps, mm. you know. And uh, so... It is inherently unpredictable, but I'm not, you know, I, I, I'm not spooked by the range of state polls before Christmas that showed, um, uh, that showed Trump leading in several key swing states because I just think it's, it's very early days. How spooked are you by a Trump victory? Very, from, from yeah. Looking from here. I am, yeah. It could be not not the implications for Europe and European security and defence. Now, Trump talked about you know getting out of NATO and all these things uh, last time, and obviously, lots of Irish people have very ne- negative views uh, about NATO for one reason or another. But one, it still underpins Western Europe. It's, it's the defensive shields uh, around Europe, and people say, "Well, defensive from what?" Well, since the last. American election, we've had a demonstration of uh, of against what and uh, 
And I think, you know, Donald Trump wouldn't have to formally leave NATO or anything like that. His statements about NATO in the past and his apparent statements or his reported statements to Ursula von der Leyen that the US US, uh, guarantee of defending Europe would not be operable uh, if Europe was attacked. That in itself... Then uh, make make you know changes the whole dynamic between uh, surrounding European defence, and I think what will happen um, is if he is uh, if 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 Trump is elected, or perhaps in anticipation of a Trump election, is that defence in Europe becomes a much more important issue at EU level, and that in turn will pose some uncomfortable questions for uh, for any Irish I, I I think that's true, Jack, but I also think that, again, going back to those Vox Pops, if you listen to what those Republican voters were saying and how they articulated their support for Donald Trump, it was, first of all, that they believed he ran a really good economy up until it was derailed uh, in 2020 by, by the pandemic. And they said again and again and again, he was the pre- first president in 50 years who hadn't had America in a single war. He wasn't a globalist. He wasn't a neocon which is a reference, I suspect, mm-hmm. to, the, to, the, to, to the Iraq war. So there is a deep um, move in America back towards a, a political tradition which has always been there, which is unilateralism and isolationism. So people in Europe better get their act together one way or the other, even if he doesn't live, because those trends, those trends are bigger than Donald Trump. Yeah, and, and he tacks strongly to that. One of the things that, I mean, probably the thing that held back the first Trump uh, White House was just the fact that it was such a chaotic basket, basket yes. case, you know, and uh, it was full of headbangers and a rotating cast and, you know, just, you know, court politics and um, palace intrigue and, you know, all these kind of things that meant, up, meant, meant that a huge amount of the energy of the place was eaten up by that kind of stuff. And they didn't get anything approaching what they kind of said they were going to do done. But the risk, I suppose, would be that the next time out, if he is returned, that that wouldn't repeat itself and a, a, a more stable kind of set of advisors around him would mean a, a more effective implementation of that kind of, you know, isolationist mode that he represents. Um, now, you would have to solve the problem that is Donald Trump, who seems to just function in that way. Um, and indeed, indeed encourage all those kind of things actively within his own staff. Um, but the risk, the risk remains, you know. Like his campaign looks more professional and a less dysfunctional version of Donald Trump can do yeah, more I mean, damage than a dysfunctional the, one. There was a piece recently in The Atlantic about this, precisely about this, about how the, the Trump organisation was preparing for government, yeah. to use a phrase that we used earlier in a different context, in a much more coherent and professional way and had studied the things that prevented him from implementing his agenda in his first term and were thinking of getting uh, thinking of ways to to get around uh, to get around them which you know i suppose means that you know the threat that a trump presidency presents for europe in not just in the defence realm, but but particularly in, but particularly in that yeah. um, is more is a lot more acute. Um, we're going to have a quick look at some articles that took our fancy this week. Uh, Jack, you were reading a piece from our health section. 
Yes, mental health, yeah. Um, this is the part of the podcast where I, I air a view that, you know, is toxic and may get me cancelled. But I think that there's... Please, please do go ahead. I, go for I, it. I, I, mm. fear, I fear there is <laughs> too much emphasis on mental health these days. Or it's certainly that within the kind of broad discussion of mental health, which is to be welcomed because, you know, we hadn't talked about it enough, that sometimes it can go into some weird and, and kind of dark You've places. Talked about it a lot, yeah, we've talked about it a lot. And Geraldine Walsh, who's a contributor to, to the Irish Times, has a piece about, you know, the the attempts to challenge the stigmas around mental health and how that has kind of, you know, it has kind of metastasized in some ways into something that can be quite harmful in and of itself and how it kind of goes hand in hand with, you know, a tendency to kind of self-pathologize all the time, this relentless need to kind of situate every single behavior or even mood into, you know, a, a, an ADHD or something like that and to self-diagnose. Yeah, and how psychology, every, yeah. everything's like, every, you know, everybody's OCD. Yeah, they use just, these, it, it, these it's, it's relentless. And, and like, I just have this kind of longstanding view that like, you know, while overall, in broad strokes, the thing is to be welcomed. Like, at its best, it can be a little humorous and boring. And at its worst, it can be a bit kind of cynical and grifty sometimes, I feel. So uh, the piece the piece kind of delves into how we need to be a bit, a bit more careful about, you know, just embracing and glamorizing, I suppose, uh, the idea of everyone having this kind of fragile mental health um, and everyone being kind of sick in the head in some ways. So. Yeah, there's a political edge to that. Brian Fanning, the UCD academic in a few months ago, he was talking about the way it sort of infected political discourse as well. Yeah. So things that were previously seen as, you know, political are now phobias, you know. Um, so there's a bit of that there too. Do you have any phobias here? No, I'm, 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 I'm phobia-free, actually. Um, I don't like... The only phobia I have is being told about things that we need to talk about more. Which yeah. invariably, in my case, means we need to talk about them less. Yeah. Um, my need to have a conversation. Raise my awareness. Question. Yes. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. I'm, I'm already aware of nearly everything that there is awareness raising about. You're aware of how little you want to talk about it. I'm definitely aware of that. It, this really could go on for... I, I, I might just leave now. No, I won't. Um, I'm going I'm to tell you about my article because it is a very good article. I would recommend it. Um, it's by Naomi O'Leary. It's a kind of a mor- modern morality tale mm-hmm. that happened in a small town in, in northern Italy where um, a, a, there's a pizzeria there, a popular pizzeria. And as is the case these days, there's you know user comments... Google Google reviews and somebody made a comment about they they were upset because they were sitting beside somebody like a gay couple I think or, or somebody who and somebody who was disabled and the proprietor uh, responded to this by saying uh, well then you're not welcome here anymore if those are your kinds of attitudes and it blew up into a sort of one of those sort of Christmas time there is no news kind of news stories and um, she became a sort of a heroine and was interviewed on television and all a little bit over the top and then there was a backlash against that and it all got very nasty. Um, and she ended up taking her own life, it, 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 it would appear. And it was a kind of an illustration of how absolutely appalling these kinds, of, these kinds of things are and how, in my view, somebody who doesn't do X anymore, and X was really my only real social media channel, uh, the sooner we arrive in the post-social media age, the better. It's the backlash to the backlash to the thing that's just begun. Exactly. Pat, what was lesson, your lesson being... Don't pay any attention to what's on social media. Um, so my piece was, uh, it was a piece um, in the Irish Times on Wednesday. It was the column that Martin Wolf uh, writes in the Financial Times and we also publish it in the Irish Times. And uh, a subject that we haven't talked about much uh, of late, but which we should talk about more, Hugh, uh, Brexit. Oh, God. No. And... Uh, no. He said, I, I, I won't dwell on it. I'll just quote a few... Uh, Permission to yes. Close his laptop. He says, <laughs> Brexit... Actually, <clears throat> oh no! <laughs> Brexit was certain to go wrong because it was based 
on false premises. Is this that church? Is that supposed to be Martin Wolf? <laughs> <laughs> so it's Martin Wolf as Channing Churchill. Churchill. Yeah. Okay. Countries cannot be fully sovereign in trade since it involves at least one counterparty. Thus, the rules of the single market were created because the alternative was multiple different regulatory regimes and so costlier and smaller trade. An institution also had to decide oh God, whether how long countries is this going to go on, Pat? were abiding by the <laughs> rules they had agreed. <laughs> that has been the indispensable role of the European Court of Justice. Creating the single market then was an act Nine, of words. regulatory yeah. simplification. Leaving it would increase regulation for any business trying to sell in both the UK and the European Union. Such business would necessarily be discouraged. So, indeed, it has proved. Well done. Are you finished? <laughs> well, there's, God, another, so. there's another bit, actually. No! <laughs> um, we're going to leave it there. We're going to have a word with Pat about his, his approach to, uh, to article selection and, indeed, article description after, <laughs> after this podcast. But we will... We will leave it there for the moment. Thank you very much to Jack and Pat was here too. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> thanks to our producer Declan Conlon and our engineer JJ Vernon. We will be back with you very soon indeed. <laughs>